And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show today. Of course, it's Thursday, second best day of the week. Lots of stuff to get into after yesterday's CPI number. As we said yesterday morning, that was going to be the market moving event yesterday for the most part. And what we had said then was is that the way the market was set up, if the number was fairly hot, that, you know, closer to 6%, then we would likely see a fairly sharp sell-off in the markets if it was much weaker. In other words, if the beginning number of that CPI print had a four in it, we could have seen a much stronger rally in the markets. And, and we really got a nothing burger of a day, really, in terms of CPI. Yes, headline CPI did come in weaker than expected. It was up about one-tenth of one percent. But the, the core inflation that's the number that really the Fed looks at a little bit more, was still up four-tenths of a percent. And if you take a look at both core and what we call sticky CPI, those have really not come down that much. And so again, the market yesterday kind of flopped around. Most of the day did sell off into the afternoon a bit because the, the reality is, is that the data does not suggest right now that the Fed is going to pause, much less pivot and start cutting rates anytime soon. And remember, the markets are already pricing in 110 basis points of rate cuts by the end of this year. And there's really no evidence at this moment that the Federal Reserve is going to be anywhere close to cutting rates soon unless the economy slips into a recession. And with employment strong right now, with inflation, the sticky kind of core inflation remaining fairly high, the odds are that the Fed is going to be hiking rates at the next meeting and potentially saying they're going to have to hike more. Now, that was also in the FOMC minutes, so they released yesterday afternoon the minutes from the last FOMC meeting. In that statement, two things in particular came out. One was is that the Fed was ready to hike 50 basis points at the last meeting had it not been for the banking crisis. That was the Silicon Valley Bank and others that, that were kind of on the ropes pri right prior to that meeting. Had it not been for that, they would have hiked uh, interest rates by 50 basis points. The second thing is, is they do see a mild recession. Now, be careful with that statement because the Fed never says they expect to see a recession. They've always said in the past, oh, yeah, growth is fine, subprime is contained, you know, it's a Goldilocks economy. They never say the economy is going to be in a recession because if they did, everybody would panic and immediately we'd be in a recession. Well, now for the last several months, the Fed has been making repeated hints at, yeah, we could see a mild recession, but we have tools to manage this, right? So don't worry about it. If the economy slows down a bit, we got you, right? Mild recession. Well, if they've never actually said there was going to be a recession before, and we've had some and been fairly nasty, just how bad is this recession going to be when they're saying it's going to be a mild recession? Because if they said, look, you know, we've really screwed the pooch here because we've been hiking rates and now all this is about to come back and lag effect. We're going to have a pretty bad recession. Immediately, everybody would panic. Market would be down 3,000 points and everybody would be out there just, you know, stopping doing everything. And you'd have a really, really deep recession, right? And so the Fed can't come out and say 
how bad the recession will be or will not be, right? I'm not saying it's going to be a terrible recession. I'm just saying that the Fed has to really couch their speech well. And the fact is that we have never in the past seen the Federal Reserve say there's a recession coming. We've never seen that before. It's always been, hey, it's a Goldilocks economy. Everything's fine. So anyway, we've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning with Michael Leibowitz to go over this. We'll talk about the impact on this, what the outlook is. Um, One other thing, yesterday we talked a little bit about, you know, psychology in the markets and uh, Tuesday's article was that bullishness is still not extreme in the markets right now. Lots of bearishness still. That's kind of a good thing that kind of gives the market room to rally when when nobody's buying into the rally that gives the market room to work. I know that kind of seems counterintuitive, but that's the way markets work. But one of the things that we noted yesterday was this whole idea that, well, you know, investors and, and psychology and the bad things that we do over time and then how this works out. And one of the things that we did touch on was this idea of buy and hold investing and, and why that doesn't work over time. And I thought this was interesting. Um, there was an article out this morning uh, talking about the NASDAQ. And the NASDAQ is now back to where it was two years ago. And we can actually see that if you, if you look at where the market is right today, um, and we closed yesterday right on the moving average, it's exactly where it was now two years ago. So we go back to two years to May of 2021, and the market has made no gains in the last two years. Now, that's actually a pretty good thing, thinking what we went through last year, right, and and how bad things could be. And of course, remember that at the bottom of the market last year, everybody was saying, oh, FANG stocks are dead. Well, of course, those FANG stocks have now led by a large margin. 90% of the returns this year so far have come from the top 10 stocks in the NASDAQ. But again, here's the point about this that I wanted to make, and this is, the, this is the fallacy with this whole idea of buy and hold investing and average rates of return over time. So again, assuming that you need 6% a year to meet your retirement goal, well, you needed 6% in 2021, you needed 6% in 2022, what you've got now is zero over the course of the last two years. So there's a 12% lag right now between you and your retirement goal that you now need to make up. So in year three over here, not only are we gonna have to make another 6% to get back towards our goal of 6% a year, we've also gotta make up the 12% that we're still behind. And that's the problem with buy and hold investing over time is that it discounts when you start running your math going, oh, well, if I just get 6% a year or 4% a year or whatever it is to reach my retirement goal, you have to adjust and account for years that you do not get those returns because those have to be made up down the road. And this is why there's always such a massive difference between what people think they're going to have at some point in the future and what they wind up actually having because they wind up taking a way, taking too much risk in the markets and that winds up impairing their returns because of losses. And again, we can go back and look at last year as a good example. In 2021, we had this massive surge in meme stocks and retail trading, et cetera. And we warned you then, we said this is gonna end very badly. Of course, that has completely collapsed in 2022 and 2023. And a lot of those stocks are down uh, a tremendous amount. In fact, over the last two years, there's about a 280 basis point lag between the markets and what meme stocks have been doing. So all that kind of fervor and froth 
that was in the market has now come out for, for most of that degree, but you have devastated a lot of, of financial investing over that time frame. I'm getting a lot of emails from people, hey, I'm down 70% of my portfolio, what do I do? Well, stop doing stupid things is the, is the first good start because that's the way investing works over time. If you treat the market like a casino, it will treat you like a casino and it will take all your money. So invest carefully, invest wisely, invest conservatively. That will also get you better returns over time. But this is a very important part of the math calculation. So when you hear people say, hey, Markets generate 8% a year. No, they don't. Markets do not compound. We touched on this yesterday, and this is a really good example, real time of the NASDAQ. You're 12% behind your goal going into this year right now because of no returns over the last two years. You've now got to make that up plus 6% each year going forward. It's not as easy as that sounds, and that's why a lot of people really don't reach their financial goals on time. So just a little quick side note, I thought it was interesting on that note this morning. Um, outside of that, get by the website, Michael's article is, is out. We're gonna talk a little, about, a little bit today about de-dollarization. We touched on it earlier, lots of headlines right now talking about this whole issue. And Peter Schiff out, of course, yesterday with another comment on the dollar loss and all this. We'll talk a little bit about that, also more about the Fed, inflation, what that means for the upcoming meeting. Most importantly, what does it mean for the markets? That's coming up on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What's new with Social Security this year? Our next Lunch and Learn will reveal seven things to watch in 2023. Thursday, April 13th at noon, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will share Social Security claiming strategies, the 2023 COLA, and earnings tests. Our What's New with Social Security this year Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso, April 13th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So yesterday, of course, uh, was the much anticipated CPI report. Of course, as I said, uh, really pretty much a nothing burger more than anything else. But there were some interesting data points in there also. Um, you know, one in particular, and we've talked about this before, that will probably suggest a very steep decline in inflation in the months ahead. But uh, before we get into that, let's get in with Michael Leibowitz. Good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great. <laughs> My allergies are killing me, but I'm doing great. <laughs> That's good. Um, so, yeah. So what was your initial kind of takeaway from yesterday's uh, CPI report um, and the market reaction? Uh, I called ham on rye over a nothing burger. <laughs> Boring. I mean, look, the problem is inflation is coming down. We see it. But, you know, the headline is inflation fell from six to five percent. And on a year over year basis, that's true. But the Fed doesn't really look at that. The, that's a headline type number because the problem with that number is it's looking at the last 12 months and saying, well, prices are only rising 5% a year now versus 6% a year ago. Well, inflation was rising 1% a month a year ago. Mm -hmm. So when you strip out that very high inflation and you replace it with much more moderate inflation, 
you're going to have mathematical, mathematically big changes in the year over year type calculations. Yeah. But if you look at quarterly, what it's done for the last three months, if you look at core, like, last, like Lance mentioned earlier, the inflation rate is sticky. It's, it's slowly coming down. It's still 5%, even if you want to use the year over year metrics. The quarterly metrics points to it, point to it being about 4%, which is better than 5%, but it's been running at 4% now for seven, six, seven months. So, so the Fed really thinks they have a problem on their hand. Nothing a good old recession can't help, <laughs> but they have a problem on their hand. And I think they're they're kind of telling us nothing a good old recession can't help. They also, in their FOMC minutes, they mentioned that sticky pr- core prices are very sticky if you exclude housing. Right. I mean, housing is also still going up, but core prices, and that's what they look at the most, they exclude food and energy because they tend to be very volatile, are sticky. And they're not really coming down. The other issue is that the the last leg of this de, de, disinflation has been goods prices coming down and services prices still rising, but not as fast. Well, now we're starting to see service prices coming down, which is a good thing, except goods prices are starting to rise in certain sectors. And they're going to offset if this trend continues. And keep in mind, crude oil is now 83 a barrel. And at least here in the D.C. area, we're paying, you know, upwards of, you know, if you can find gas in the upper threes now, you're doing pretty well. So we're back to nearly four dollars a gallon in gasoline. That is going to offset to some degree what should be a decline in services, services prices. But like the Fed's telling us and they never tell us this soft landing is about as bearish as they get. They're telling us to expect a mild recession. If you, you know, again, let's talk about math. Right now, Atlanta Fed GDP is expecting 2% or so GDP growth. And that's more or less in line with expectations around around Wall Street. So if the economy grows at 2%, what do you need for, you got you have three more quarters, what do you need for those three quarters to make, to get to a negative at, you know, some point. And the answer is that you need, you know, like a minus 0.6, minus 0.7 for three quarters or a minus 2% for one quarter. You can, any kind of gyration you can do here, but the Fed's telling you that that number will come down and we will have a couple quarters at least of negative growth. Right. Now, that's, and, and again, this is their expectations as well, just looking at their data. And I thought there was a couple of interesting components, you know, talking about housing. Housing makes up about 40 home. What it's called, and, and technically in CPI, we say housing. It's actually what's called homeowners equivalent rent. And there's a bunch of mathematical manipulations that go you know, on inside this calculation to come up with it. Uh, that number actually the, the housing component actually dropped fairly sharply in the last quarter. But this is something you and I have talked about before is that you know, the decline in housing runs a very big lag to the index. And, you know, you take a look at Schiller's, you know, home price data, it's three months in arrears. So, you know, that whole, you know, kind of lag effect of rising housing prices that have now become falling housing prices is now starting to show up in the headline, you know, kind of uh, CPI number. And so that's going to be one thing that really suppresses. And, and two, and, and back to your other point as well, you know, talking about math, you, you know, 
when you say CPI is rising at 5% on a year-over-year basis, it's rising at 5% on a year-over-year basis. If prices don't move between today and next year and everything remained flat, inflation would be zero. Right. But we'd still be paying a whole lot more for everything, right? So, you know, that's the that's the fun with math part. But this housing component can certainly drop that big headline number, which, to your point, that's why the Fed really doesn't pay as much attention to the headline and pays more attention to that core, which is what consumers deal with on a, on a regular basis. And, and this is an important point because we've discussed this before. You know, Mike, uh, inflation has been up over the last, you know, couple of years, you know, seven, eight, nine percent. Has your house payment changed? And the answer is nope. no. Right. My mortgage payment doesn't change. My rent payment doesn't change because they're contractual agreements. And so when you look at the inflation data, you've got to kind of back out some of the logic of this and saying what really impacts the consumer. It's not housing. It's not rent unless you're going out and buying a house today or if you're going out and signing a rental contract today. That's going to make a difference because, yes, you're going to pay more for that today. But if you're already in these contractual obligations, same thing for health care. Your healthcare doesn't change in price for an entire year until you have to re-sign up at the next open enrollment period. So the Fed looks at this core because that's what consumers are dealing with on an everyday basis. And that's why the core and the sticky core is much more important. And the sticky core excludes housing altogether. So that's why they look at these, the, these data points more importantly. And Mike, to your point, that's what they're looking at when they're making these policy rate decisions. And those sticky core numbers aren't coming down near enough to suggest the Fed's going to start cutting rates here. Right, right. And here's the dirty little secret. And it's not a secret because the Fed told us this. They know that if inflation or that if GDP continues to run at 2% ish, inflation's not coming down. Right. It's going to remain sticky right around where it is. It could even go up a little bit. They know they have to administer a recession. They need higher unemployment. They need GDP to come down. They need consumers to stop spending money as quickly as much as they are today. And, you know, you can make whatever kind of political judgments you want on that statement that they're basically wanting a recession. But that's how you are going to get inflation down. And then the argument is, is it worth a few jobs to get inflation down? Are you penalizing some to help the majority of others and that's a debate we can have all day but but the but the fed is charged with having price, stable prices and maximizing employment employment is beyond maximized right now according to some measures some people argue there's still a little slack in the system but nonetheless the employment market is really healthy and i feel like they can give up some on that side of the ledger let the unemployment rate tick up to, you know, it's at 50 year lows. Let it tick mm. up a little bit if it'll bring prices down. And that's the juggling act they're going to try to uh, conduct over the next nine months. So, yeah, and that and, and that's and this is going to be the challenge. Right. And this is when we come back to looking at the financial markets. You know, the markets are betting heavily and have been betting heavily ever really since the October lows that the Fed's going to pivot. The Fed's going to cut rates. Um, right now, expectations, you know, Fed funds, you know, Fed funds futures expect right now a 25 basis point hike at the next FOMC meeting. That's pretty much baked into the cake right now uh, after yesterday's CPI report. That'll bring the Fed funds rate up to 5%. And the Fed is, is likely going to, and we've said this before, and, and again, it's, it's interesting to me that the market hasn't figured this out yet, is that the Fed's going to hold that rate at 5% unless there is a recession. 
or unless there is some other type of, you know, uh, and, and the Fed even mentioned this, and Warren Buffett talked about this yesterday as well when he was being interviewed, that the banking crisis situation isn't behind us. There's likely going to be some more bank failures coming. But that's the only environment where the Fed's going to be cutting rates. X those events. There's no reason for the Fed to cut. I mean, that would actually be nirvana for the Fed. You know, what, what a great position for the Fed to be in. I can put interest rates at 5%. I can reduce the balance sheet back to, you know, 300 million or 300 billion where I started in 2009 <laughs> and, you know, put everything back to where it was monetarily if everything is fine in the markets and the economy. Now I've got all this ammo for the next recession or crisis whenever it occurs. So this idea that the Fed's going to be cutting X some type of event seems a little bit um, naive uh, by I the markets. I think that's the soft landing the Fed was talking about that they thought they could pull off. Now they kind of realize they can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I think it'll be interesting. But uh, when we come back from the break, I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, we'll talk a, a touch on your article yesterday that uh, you had posted talking about the dollar. Uh, we've just been getting a ton of questions and uh, concerns from both clients and prospects about this idea of de-dollarization and, you know, the, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. Can't really disagree <laughs> if you just take a look at the media. But uh, we'll talk about de-dollarization. Uh, Peter Schiff out yesterday uh, making some comments in this regard. So I'll kind of play a little bit of point-counterpoint with, with Mike after the break on this idea of de-dollarization. And is it really as big of a threat as everybody makes it out to be? And, and B, should you be making portfolio changes to adjust for this. We are back after the break. I'm Harold Science Roberts. Don't go away. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. So, shifting gears here just a bit, uh, I've actually got a couple of linked topics. Um, relating to the dollar and, and de-dollarization. And um, it was interesting. There's been lots of conversations lately, lots of podcasts, you know, talking about de-dollarization and that the world is going to move away from the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. Let me just give you a quote yesterday from Peter Schiff. We may lose, and he's talking, this is specifically to the loss of the dollar as a reserve currency. We may lose that privilege, being the reserve currency, over the next several years, maybe even over the next few months. And this is, you know, these kind of comments have certainly generated a lot of emails and questions and concerns by both our clients as well as uh, prospects and, and just 
listeners to the show, um, people that visit our website, email us like, what do you think about the dollar? We're, we're going to lose the dollar. Don't we need to be all in gold? A couple of things. And this is crucially important. And, and, we're, and Mike wrote a very good article about this yesterday as well. It's on our website now at realinvestmentadvice.com. What, you know, before we get into the discussion of de-dollarization and the loss of you know, reserve currency, let's talk about gold for just a second as well, because this all goes into this. The idea of owning gold as an alternative for a fiat currency is not valid. And the reason is, is that because no currency on the planet is backed by gold anymore. Every currency in the world is a fiat currency. Every currency is backed by a money printer at the central bank of that country. So if Russia wants to print more rubles, they print more rubles. If we want to print more dollars, we print more dollars. That's the benefit and value of having a central bank and having a printer <laughs> or a treasury department and being on a fiat currency. You can always print more money. This is one of the things that gives the full faith and credit of people buying treasuries the ability to get paid back. Despite all the other you know, comments and concerns about date sellings and everything else, the debt will always be paid because we can print the money to do it. Now, that's not a good thing, right? I'm not saying it's a good thing we can print money. We just have the ability to do it. The one problem for the euro is that the French and the English and the Spanish and the Swiss all gave up their, their ability. I shouldn't say that's incorrect. I said English. That is not true. UK is not part of the euro. Um, but they gave up their ability to print their own currency. They're all in the euro system. So they're dependent on, on the European Central Bank. UK can still print the pound. But the point is everybody can print currency. And, and that has a, a, a issue of itself and causes problems. But if you own gold, that's great. But we're not on a barter system. So try to take your gold bar, go down to Starbucks and try to buy something with it. You can't because they can't convert it into dollars. The only way you can spend your gold is to go convert it back into that fiat currency that you are trying to get away from. That's that's the whole the way the world works now. And this is the one of the issues we'll talk about in a minute about uh, central bank digital currencies as well, where we're trying to get to, is a further diversification away from a, a, a chunk of metal, right? So it's important to understand these. I'm not saying don't know gold. That's that's entirely up to you. It's a commodity. It's got a value. You can buy it. You can sell it. You can do those type of things in the open markets. It's just not a it's not a replacement for a currency because we're not on a barter system. If we are on a barter system, we got bigger problems. <laughs> we got a lot bigger problems, and you better have some lead to go along with your gold. Uh, but that's a whole different conversation. Hmm. So. Here's here, so here's the problem, and you know so let's talk about de-dollarization. The idea is, is that we're going to wake up one morning and the rest of the world is no longer going to be trading in U.S. dollars, and that's going to be a catastrophe to the U.S. and it will be problematic if that would occur. But as we've talked about before here on the show, and I will now turn it over to Mike to let it, to let him explain to you why this is most likely not something that we need to worry about over the next few months, much less the longer term. Mike, your thoughts. So uh, yesterday I published part one of an article and what ended up happening was I was writing and writing and writing and this thing ended up being a monster. So I split it in half, part one this week, part two next week. 
part one just lays the groundwork. What is a reserve currency? Why is it the dollar? How did it switch from the pound to the dollar and why? And, and that that helps you appreciate why the dollar is a reserve currency and how it's become so important and why it is still very important for global trade. Now, the, everyone agrees to some degree that there are big problems with the dollar. We, we the United States, are grossly mismanaging our financial system. You know, way too much debt, not enough productivity or economic growth, considering how much debt there is. We're just becoming more over leveraged by the day. And yes, in time, we will either inflate our way out of it or bankrupt in time, not today, not tomorrow. So the 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 the, the question I think you should ask is not whether the dollar is good or bad, whether it should be the reserve currency, but what's the replacement? When you when you when you think about that question, okay, well, if the world is not going to use dollars, what can they use? What can offer the same thing as the dollar? And that's when you can come if you really go through that, that's where you come to the conclusion that there really is no answer. And part two of my article coming next week talks about why the dollar is preferred. You have the rule of law. You may not think our judicial system is perfect, but it's a hell of a lot more perfect than China or Russia. And it's on par or better than most other nations that have a currency that that could potentially compete far and away have military might. You think Ukraine's going to go off the dollar anytime soon? If they if they made an announcement yesterday, they're going to start using the euro or some other or Bitcoin or gold. They're they're going to lose to Russia in two weeks because we're going to pull back all our support. We also have the world's largest economy. So by default, so much trade just goes through this country and it's much easier to accomplish if it's in dollars. So there's a lot of reasons why it's why it's the dollar. And you start thinking about, well, what about, let's say, gold? There's a couple problems with gold. A, like Lance said, if we went to just gold, you're bartering and you're walking around and chipping off slices of a gold bar to buy a cup of coffee. That doesn't work. But I think what some people would probably Peter Schiff would like to see is a gold backed dollar. And we used to have that. The problem with the gold backed dollar is the amount of dollars is limited to the amount of gold and gold production only changes by a couple percent. It only grows by a couple percent a year. So you are limited in your money supply growth to a couple percent a year. And again, we can debate whether whether a um, limit on money supply growth is good or bad. But I can tell you right now, the Fed and the government will not go for that. Well, and one the thing Fed, is, is that you think you have a, you think you have bad inflation now. Wait until you have, you know, money limited by gold. You know, you're going to be talking about paying tens of thousands of percents of inflation from where you are today. Right. So then there's Bitcoin. Same prop, similar problem with Bitcoin. Do you really think the U.S. government or any other government is going to relinquish relinquish their control over the currency? Because once they do that, they relinquish relinquish control over the over the economy and the country. So gold and Bitcoin or gold backed dollars and Bitcoin are not very probable. Then you start going around the horn. Ain't going to be Russia. Is it China? China doesn't have the rule of law. They're a communist country. They'll take the money. They 
they don't have liquid markets. Again, I failed to mention that liquid markets are very important because the world, every nation has reserves of it's like their bank account of dollars that they use to buy and sell in foreign markets. Well, where are you going to keep, you know, if I told you you have to hold on to a million dollars worth of yuan and you have to put it in a Chinese bank, how comfortable are you going to be with that? And where can you invest that money? And will you be comfortable investing it in a safe place to know you get it back when you need it? So China is not the answer. Saudi Arabia is certainly not the answer. Euro, it, you know, it certainly has taken, it's about 20% of the world's trade goes through the Euro, but the, the they don't have liquid markets. They don't have military might. Their economy is really not that big. You know, Germany is what a four trillion dollar GDP versus mm. our twenty four trillion. Yeah. And Germany's the biggest nation in Europe. So you, you kind of go around and you look at all the other potential uh, global reserve currencies. And yeah, the dollar's not perfect. It's far, far from perfect. But there's no replacement in well, sight right now. Yeah, not and, that and, that can't change. And, and, but right, right now, there's nothing. Right, and you know, and the big thing is, and, and the one, and you you touched on this point, but I think it's it's a, it's the important point to to reiterate here, which is, think about all the dollars of trade that occur every day, buying and selling of goods and services. We import a tremendous amount of goods into our country. We export a, a tremendous amount of goods from our country. Um, all those transactions, you need a currency that is deep and liquid enough to handle those transactions. So when you go back and talk about some of these countries, sure, maybe we could do it in the Chinese yuan or the Russian ruble or the Japanese yen, maybe, right? The question becomes, are those currencies liquid enough and deep enough to handle those transactions without causing a massive surge of inflation because of, of a lack of supply of the dollars or, or the currency to handle those transactions. But there's one other one other point on this, and then I want to switch over to central bank digital currencies because it tags into this very specific situation. Um, but when we come back from the break, we'll touch on some of the concerns about the recent moves away from the dollar and what that actually means. Don't go away. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, I wanted to wrap up this conversation on uh, de dollarization real quick and then talk a little bit about central bank digital currencies because uh, Florida has made a very interesting move in that direction. Um, but, real quick, you know, one of the you know, issues of late has been some of the headlines. Uh, China cut a deal with Brazil to transact goods and business with Brazil using the yuan. Um, we've seen other moves where, you know, headlines where some deal was done to sell oil and some other currency or whatever it is. Well, these are a very small percentage of transactions. Over the last 20 years, the use of the dollar as a reserve currency was about 73%. It's gone to 59% over the last 20 years. There's a lot of reasons for that. But importantly, 
one of the things that if you're constantly putting tariffs on my country, if you're constantly attacking me, um, you know, politically or, you know, uh, economically, et cetera, yeah, I'm probably going to try to figure out how to do some transactions to bypass the dollar because you're putting tariffs and restrictions on me, right, in the case of China. Or there's another factor here, which is the cost to the economy. So if, if the dollar is strong relative to my currency, right, and I want to buy things in the dollar, it, it makes things more expensive for me. So not only do I have the inflation of price just because of general economic situations, but now if I'm trading in dollars and I'm using a weaker currency, it's adding to that inflation rate on top of that because of the currency exchange. So in that environment, I will probably try to figure out how to do a transaction in another currency to offset that potential currency exchange variable that's adding to the price of the goods or service that, that I'm trying to do. So the point about that is, is that, yes, we're seeing some headlines now where certain things are going on because of either we're politically, geopolitically, economically, et cetera, attacking a country or because of the relative value of the dollar and inflation of goods and services on a trade basis. So when those things change, so will the use of the dollar. So in other words, if the Chinese yuan became much more expensive than the dollar, you would see people wanting to start to transact in the dollar. That will reverse. So again, be careful with the. All I'm saying is, you know, just be careful when you read a headline that says A is transacting business with B in a different currency. That doesn't necessarily mean it's de-dollarization and they're making a permanent move away from the dollar. They're simply structuring a deal to bypass inflation or to bypass sanctions, et cetera, that are currently happening in the economy. Mike, your comments to wrap that up. Look, China and Russia would love to get rid of the dollar. It ain't going to happen, though. And they're going to do one-off deals with countries that like them, and there really aren't that many countries that, like that are willing to, to <laughs> shun the dollar. That's right. So, so you know, unless it's a one, you know, these one-off things can happen because both countries require things that that each one sells, but but they're very difficult and they're costly and they economically don't make as much sense as the dollar. So yeah, the dollar will slowly lose its status, but that's slowly, and that's been going on for thirty or forty or even more years. Yeah. This isn't anything new. Right. And, then, and, and, that, uh, and that was my point. Even at the peak of the dollar power as a reserve currency, we didn't have 100 percent of the market share. There was there's always transactions going on in other currencies. And that's been going on for 50 years. Right. And it will. There's no such thing as one reserve currency that is 100 percent of all transactions. And actually, the dollars as reserves have been shrinking, Lance, but dollars as a percent of transactions has been very stable at yeah. a very high number. So it's countries are holding less dollars, but the transactions that occur in dollars are barely slipping. Yeah. Uh, I want to shift gears here real quick because it does apply to de-dollarization, but it's also something I thought was interesting. Uh, central bank digital currencies, there's been a lot more talk from the Fed, Treasury, others about, you know, there, there's a CBDC, um, central bank digital currency, in testing form right now. They expect to, to potentially have a CBDC out within the next couple of years. 
um, that'll be you know kind of handling this. And this is something that Mike and I were talking about four years ago relative to Bit four or five years ago. Mike and I were talking about this relative to Bitcoin. Is that you know Bitcoin is awesome. It's cool. It's neat. It's it's a thing. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and Mike mentioned this earlier, no government is going to allow a third-party currency to, to be involved long-term with the economy. Once it becomes a threat to trade and to economic stability in some form or fashion, it'll get replaced, deregulated, etc., and we're seeing that already now. And this is why central banks are now coming up with their own digital currency. Great. Bitcoin was a great test bed. They got to see it work. It's like, yeah, OK, people are interested in this. We can make this work. So now they're going to you know, print their own and, and create their own digital currency. Um, this is also why you can't print money in your basement, <laughs> because, as Mike said earlier, the, you know, the control of the currency is the single most vital thing in terms of economic stability and national security. If you lose control of your currency, you have no control over your economy. What a, digital, a central bank digital currency will allow the, the central bank to do is to basically understand and know exactly where every dollar is at every moment within the economy. So it's, you know, there, there's a lot of loss of privacy, obviously, that you can start talking about, but it does provide a very exacting control over the economic transactions within the country by understanding exactly where every dollar is. I thought it was interesting, Mike, from that standpoint, uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis, just signed a bill that is outlawing any central bank digital currency in Florida. Um, he's also been on, in touch with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick here in Texas about potentially doing a similar bill here in Texas. And their view was, and, and Ron DeSantis' view was, is that the value of the dollar is very important to economic stability, but it's also important to the privacy of the individual citizen. And so they're saying no to any central bank digital currency, that the dollar needs to be the dollar in your wallet that you have control over and also your privacy. And I just want to get your thoughts on, on that. Look, I, I think... A lot of people are very scared of these digital currencies because it gives a lot more power to the Fed. They could, you know, in theory, print without telling anyone. And look, every transaction will be monitored and scrutinized. But Lance, is that really any different than what we have now? I just pulled out my wallet and I took out about a hundred bucks in mid-March because I went away. And I'm looking at it now and I have $7, $8, $7 has been in there for about three weeks. Yep. I have bought all kinds of things. All of it has been digitally purchased mm -hmm. with my credit card. I, I've moved money from bank accounts. 95% of the transactions in my life are digital already. Mm -hmm. If you don't think the government's not looking at your credit card, your ATM, your bank accounts, they are. The only thing they're really not able to track are currency transactions and really ask yourself what percentage of your transactions happen, happen in paper coin currency. Mm -hmm. it, for me, it's, it's, you know, especially since COVID, I don't go to the ATM anymore. There, you know, it, it's, I'll go once every six months for, you know, if I'm going on vacation, I want a few extra bucks and that's about it. Yeah. Lance, are you any different? Do you use cash? 
No, I, I, the only reason I have cash, and so, you know, I have cash in my wallet. I was just looking in my wallet, so I've got $31 <laughs> in my wallet oh, right now. Oh, rich guy. Um, rich guy. You know, I just, you know, always carry cash, always try to carry cash just in case of emergencies. But I figured this out, and I don't know how this happens, but my kids are psychic. So whenever I have, when I'll, I'll put like a $100 bill in my wallet, just because, again, you know, you break down on the side of the road, something like that. I just, I, I feel it's, I'm old, right? So I'm a boomer. I just feel like I have more security if I have a little bit of cash in my wallet, just in case. Um, you don't need to pay somebody for a ride somewhere, whatever. But as soon as I have cash in my wallet, my kids invariably ask me for money. I don't know how they know I have cash in my wallet, but they have a, a direct link mentally to my wallet. So... Lance, I have three kids, <laughs> and I guarantee you if I went through their wallets right now, I'd uh, come up with zero dollars. <laughs> oh, I know. They do not use cash at all. My, my and that's the generation that will, that is kind of taking over yeah. the economy and will. Yeah. My kids, uh, both, both, my, both my boys don't carry wallets at all. They, they basically— Actually, mine don't either. Yeah, You're they, right. They have a little, like, you know, On sleeve thing for their— you know, that they have their license and a credit card in or debit card in, I mean, and that's it. That's all they pretty much carry with them. And they, they carry right. no cash. And before COVID, I always thought it was ridiculous. These people that would buy like a $2 cup of coffee or something for a buck 50 with their credit, you know, debit card or credit right. card. That's me now. <laughs> I, you know, and the only time I will use the cash is because I want to get rid of it. It becomes, you know, if I do have too much, it becomes too like uh, bulky in my pocket. <laughs> What, what is exactly what is too much cash? A lot of fifty dollars worth ones. of ones. I mean, it's, the problem is it ends up being ones. You yeah. get stuck with all the ones. Exactly. It's kind of like the old days where you threw your change in the jar, right? And you had, and now I've got I've got a jar of dollar bills that are just kind of a pain in the butt. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I think it's a very interesting. You know, this is you know the world is changing, and I think it's important that we recognize the world is changing. We need to understand why the world is changing. We need to understand where we're headed. And we are head headed towards a digital currency, digital society. And that that's clearly evident from just all the transactions that everybody does, ev you included, every single day. How much do you do electronically, online bill pay, etc.? We're moving in that direction. But that doesn't mean and this is the important thing to take away from all this. Before you start making big investment decisions that can have life-changing effects on some outcome that you believe to be the case of, you know, a major debt default or, you know, de-dollarization or whatever it is, really think through those decisions because they can have a major impact on the outcome of your money and your wealth. And that's why we're, we're here to kind of talk you off the ledge a little bit. Right. So take that, do what you will with it. Get by the website. Michael's article is out. Part one of that uh, dollarization article on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our newsletter out uh, will be out this weekend as well. And make sure you're subscribed to our channel right here and click that little bell icon for notifications. We appreciate you for watching. We'll be back tomorrow with Financial Fitness Friday. Have a great day.